0: Uh, Alright, uh, doing intros appears to be my job now, which is is good for, for all of us, it's good for, for everyone involved. Uh, welcome, it's episode 63 of Drunk Therapy. We are joined by Elliot Castro in this one, who, uh, well he was, he's the subject of a book, Other People's Money, The Rise and Fall of Britain's Boldest Credit Card Fraudster, which was written by Neil Forsyth, who's the guy that is, wrote Guilt, which is on TV just now and probably other stuff. And it's a fucking incredible story. Like I'm, I'm not going to give too much away because I don't want to spoil the next hour and 20 minutes for you. But I know I say this all the time. It's a really good podcast. And you know me, if you listen to this regularly, I don't like anything that I do. But this is fucking really good. It's funny and it's thought provoking and it's quite deep and meaningful. And I really enjoyed it. We fucking barely scratched the surface of the conversations we could have had. Um, there's loads, the more I read the book, the more I kind of think, oh man, should have ask about that, should have ask about that, but that's a testament to, to Elliot's chat and Elliot's story and hopefully one day we'll we'll do a follow-up and, and maybe ask a wee bit more. But uh, I, I've got to do the usual bit now, Um, the reason that we talk to you at the start now is because successful podcasts do that and the reason they're successful is because they did this bit at the start, probably. I don't know, probably not. But um yeah, gonna fucking like it and all that shit. Tell people about it. We're we're slowly creeping back up. People are starting to listen again now that I don't know why, now that the shops are open. as all this did everyone that works in pre-mark listen to Podcast? Probably not. But um I don't know. We we've got some really good stuff coming up. We've put some good stuff out. I think in the next couple of weeks you're going to have interviews with the laugh and Graham Park. Some of you, probably not a lot of you, but some of you will be thinking, oh, you haven't done any, just the three of you for a while, and I missed that. Don't. Nothing's going on. There's a reason we're interviewing people that are way more interesting than us just now. That's because nothing's happening in our life. Uh, try to think, off the top of my head, James is thinking about getting a car. Shane... I don't know, Shane get chased by pigeons the other day, and there's not much going on in my life, so I'm sure the three of us will sit down at some point soon, but we need to have something happen in our life first. I'll, uh, I'll try something, I'll maybe go and jump, in. No, 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 I won't do that. Uh, they'll come back The chats is the D of I'm sure aren't far away uh, uh, If you think you're missing them You're not There's nothing going on This has gone on far too long So let's go into the interview uh, Like, share All that stuff On YouTube in a few days Yada 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 See you
1: later The following podcast Contains three mates Talking shit over some beers As you can imagine The language can get a wee bit hairy From time to time So get involved Grab a beer and join us For Drunk Therapy the
2: podcast so i take it from what i've just heard that a uh, colorful language is permitted in your podcast
0: right now. absolutely fine say whatever the fuck you want you can, can't uh, say can't
1: though you can't say i can't you can
0: you can can as much as you want it's a fucking <laughs>
3: it's a fucking glasgow podcast like, <laughs> cunts in glasgow can't even speak for five minutes without saying cunt it's encouraged mate it's encouraged but i uh, know thank you for joining us mate I'd, it's it's a weird one because I I don't know if anyone else has ever I felt like this. You know, you you like I I first like uh, became aware of you a few years ago, um, and it wasn't it was just a Amazon recommends type thing because I was just going through books for the city or the uh, types of books and and I start reading a book. And about your story, which hopefully we can get a wee bit of uh, in in due course in this episode. But And you never think that when you're reading a book of someone's that you'd end up talking to them a few years later. It always just seems such a separate thing. Like, oh, you've dipped into their world and you'll never dip back into that again. And uh, a few years later, I'm sitting on a podcast with you. It's
2: it's a bit mad, isn't it? It still seems mad to me even nowadays, you know, because I was actually having a conversation with my mum about this yesterday and just saying, you know, how... It's it's it seems to me now it's like ancient history you know because I was so young at the time and you know you've, you I think most people are the same you got a completely different mindset when you're in, when you're in your teens you know um, and just looking at things back like you know in retrospect it's just it's like it's like a completely different person you know but it takes sometimes for us to sit down and to take stock of things for you to actually realise just how far you've come and I don't just mean from like you know. Crimes and things like that I just mean anything That you've done At that point in your life Which maybe wasn't The right decision Or whatever And, and then you get to a, a later stage in life And you look back And you go That's a fucking We idiot at
3: that point Our <laughs> <laughs> podcast Is a lot of those Reflections mate um, I, know, I, I, I just I came off the back of Um And I could identify a lot with uh, things that you were saying in the book as well. I came off the back of five years of being an out my head gambling addict, you know. Um, And now I look back, I'm three years removed from that, just celebrated it the other day. And I look at that guy and I'm like, who the fuck was that guy? You know, it was just like a separation from self to what I am now. Um, But yeah, just to for anyone that's wondering, it's a a book called Other People's Money. um, And Elliot, it was released about, what, over a decade ago now, wasn't it?
2: Seven, the book came out. Um, what actually happened was it was on the back of, so I, I was at the final time I get arrested when basically the full thing came out and um, you know all the, the the sort of the full uh, impact of what I'd done was because I'd been caught lots of times for little wee things here and there, but it was only at the end when it when it came out and. What happened was there was lots of stories in the newspaper because I was so young and it was like they compared it to Catch Me If You Can. Um, obviously, the story of Frank Abagnale and things like that, which um, I can see the similarities. Obviously, it was a, a different time, obviously, when all that happened. But basically, what happened was uh, when I got arrested for the last time, um, all, these papers, uh, all these stories were in the paper and I got a letter from a guy called Neil Forsyth. Who was he? He'd went to FHM magazine, the, the lads mag. I don't even know if it's still, if that's still a thing, you know, or what. I don't even know if it's still around. But he, he was, he was wanting to write a story for them, and he wrote to me in prison and asked if I would be up for it. So he came and took me out for the day because I was in an open prison where you could get day release if you were, you know, well behaved and all that kind of thing. So he came and took me out. This was down in, uh, the prison was near Brighton, so he took me out for the day and did the article based on, on the, you know, whatever I told him that day kind of thing. And then a few weeks later, he got he got back in touch and he said, listen, I don't know how you feel about this, but, you know, I really think that you've got a, a story worthy of a book. Um, and I was like, I'd never even thought of such a thing, you know, it was never even crossed my mind to write a book about all the shit I'd done, you know, so... <laughs> <laughs> so that, that was that was basically the gist. Of it that was how it all came about, and then the book came out in two thousand and seven. Um, the book didn't didn't really do as well as what we'd hoped, in all honesty. Um, but there was talk about a film and all the rest of it, and that hasn't happened. And see, to be honest with you, I'm 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 fine with that. You know, I'm mm-hmm. like I'm not really wanting to kind of live my life based on the actions I did when I was you know in my teens, at very early twenties, you know. But I also can't I can't hide from it because it's part of who I am now. And let's be honest, you can't you can't go writing books about stuff and then not expect for people to want to speak to you about it. So, you know, I've made my bed in that regard. But it's fine. I'm 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 cool with it, you know, just um the film thing I'm not too fussed about. If it happens, it happens. If it doesn't, then, you know, it's fine.
1: Could you maybe um rewind a wee bit? Because you, you like for people that don't know your story, James obviously knows it well. We we I kinda know it a wee bit, but could you start maybe I don't know how long you want to do it or, you know, briefly or whatever, but just tell us what kind of the timeline of how this all happened and what you actually got up to.
2: Okay, so obviously, I'm, I'm aware that we've only got like an hour, so <laughs> I'll try and be about things, but um, if I get a bit carried away, feel free to just um, interject at some point. But it all started when I was very young. Um, I was at school, and I, I was like a kind of very sort of much more mature than my age when I was at school, and it made it really difficult for me to. Uh, interact with people my own age I just found it hard to be on that level and like that was that was I think that was really the basis of where it all started because I ended up I had no pals at school so I was always away in my own wee world making up my own wee stories and telling myself that you know um, well so just to give you a couple of examples there was one time when I walked into a a class at school I basically stole one of my dad's ties out his, his cupboard in the morning before I went to school uh, left school, left house with my school tie on and changed it whilst I was on the bus into my dad's tie, and just basically walked into a classroom at school and pretended I was their teacher for the day. Uh, so, so there, there was all that kind of stuff going on, you know. And I think it was just like my imagination going crazy because I didn't, I wasn't, I wasn't sure what to do with myself, you know. Um, so there was that kind of thing. There was another time that um, I decided off my own back to launch a school magazine and went and typed a memo up on the computer and printed it out and put, it, put one in each of the teacher's pigeonholes from a, a pupil to the teacher's, you know, just stuff like that. But where the, the, where the, the fraud started really was um, I went to eight different schools because strangely enough, I kept getting kicked out of school <laughs> or asked, asked to leave or whatever it was. And at this point in time, I, was, I would have been about 15 years old and I was at a boarding school up in Largs um, that they'd sent me to, because I think they'd exhausted all the avenues by that point. So they were trying to find somewhere they could put me um, where I would still get an education. So um, that place was great. It wasn't like a school, it was actually a house that you know there was myself and three other boys in uh, who you know had difficulties of some, some form or another. And on my way up there one week, because I used to go up on the Monday and come back on the Friday, and on my way up there one week, uh, somebody had dropped a credit card on the train. Um, and I picked it up and obviously I knew exactly what it was you know I knew exactly how it could potentially be used so the guy comes round to um, collect the tickets and I had a, a weekly pass so I've opened up my pass and I've, I've just said can I get a renewal please and then just handed over this card and tried like I'd already looked at the signature I was like right that's pretty easy to copy so he handed me the voucher and I subs- this was when he still signed for um, credit card transactions obviously Um, you know, that's that's no longer the case. But I signed it anyway, and unbeknownst to me, he'd seen that there was a difference in the name on my photo card and the name on the credit card. But he didn't see anything, he just went off and that was it. And then about three or four stations later, I think it was, I can't remember what station it was, Kilburnie or something like that, Um, the train stopped for ages. And then, sure enough, two police officers came on the train and they were like, that can we get a word with you? So... I went off the train and they just took me they took me back up to the school and told um, like this the principal there what had happened. So she was furious, you know, she's like, we're trying to do everything we can for you and you're away fucking bumping people's cards, right? So that was that was how it all started. But I think the, the thing that happened at that point was like I knew that these cards could be used to purchase things. And that was that was the first time that it happened. But when I left that school a few months later um, and I went to work for a, a mobile phone centre, that's when things really got a bit kind of serious, you know, and gradually over the next five years or so escalated in uh, in terms of how much money was involved and things like that. There so, was a, sorry,
0: just to up there, there's a lovely moment. I've just started reading the book a couple of days ago, so I'm halfway through it. But you talk about working in call centres and it was one that you just got—you didn't even realise that you just completely zoned out, and you just got sacked from it, being totally blissfully unaware. And it yeah. reminded me, there's like the etiquette of call centres are awful because I get taken for smiling training once in a call centre, and uh, because I had—I <laughs> didn't—I didn't sound happy enough when I read out the spiel that you may read out sixty yeah. or seventy times. And there's just a bit in your book where, you're like, I was—I yeah, think you were taking notes of credit card numbers and security details. And you didn't even notice that whilst you were doing this, you were just like not doing the job at all. And, they, <laughs> and it was like a pleasant, you were surprised when somebody came up and was just like, mate, we've got a sack you just now, by the way.
2: So, oh, what actually happened there was um, I'd been taking notes of, basically we were dealing with, it was a, a mobile phone network and we, were, we had incoming calls from both personal and business customers. Um, and over this time, so between me leaving school and starting in this call centre, um, you know i'd had sort of i'd had all the other credit cards and things in that in that time as well and you know i'll be totally honest with you the the, the, the times that i'd done that um, at that point in time was i would go out i mean i was only 16 i shouldn't have even been drinking but i was going out to pubs and things like that because i was always quite tall and i got i got away with it a lot of the time and uh, you know folk would invite me back to parties and stuff and i'd try and find a card in somebody's pocket or something like that it was pretty shitey what i'd done to be honest with you but that was at that point in time when it got to the call centre, obviously, that's when everything changed. Because at that point, I'd had a bit of experience with, um, like, cards being declined. Or I don't, know, I don't know if this even happens anymore because I haven't seen it for so long. But it used to be that if you used a card somewhere, then sometimes the system would stop the transaction and the person in the shop would have to phone through to the bank and ask personal questions to make sure that you were the right card holder. This was like before chip and pin, because obviously there was no, it was just a case if you were good enough at copying the signature, then you could potentially get away with it. So by that point, when before I started in the call centre, I'd obviously learned quite a lot about the processes because I'd, I'd had them asking me questions on the phone and I'd, I'd failed a few times because I didn't know these answers. So when I went to the, um, work for the, the call centre, I was in and I was taking, I just started writing people's credit card numbers down. I told them that I was putting them on hold because I had to go and speak to their bank. And then when I would come back to speak to them on the phone, I would start asking them questions that I knew would potentially be asked. And then... What happened as a result with that was I had all these details, but I wasn't quite sure what to do with them. So I, f- I tried phoning the bank and asking for new cards to get sent out and changing the addresses and stuff like that. And uh, it just, I couldn't believe how easy it was at the time. It was just you know, you've, as long as you knew the answer to maybe two or three questions, they would change the address. So you change the address one day, and then you'd phone back maybe a week later and ask for a new card to be sent out. Because if you did it at the same time, it could it could be a bit suspicious, you know. So that was when things started getting really serious. Because I was getting... Sorry, go
1: on. I'm sorry, man. I'm just... So at this stage, were you doing it to Joe Bloggs or were you doing it to like, you know, high-flying business people? Or was it just a mix of both?
2: At that point in time, it wasn't in any way targeted. It was just like whoever phoned in. Um, what what became clear, though, over time was that like, um, so business customers would quite often be paying with, with, with corporate credit cards and things like that. And... These cards were usually a lot, um, you had a lot higher limit on these cards. So, you know, when they arrived, you were able to do much more with them. But even, but see, to be honest, even at that point, I, was, I wasn't really like going out and buying luxury items and things like that. It was, it was stupid things that a teenager would buy, like CDs and a haircut and like maybe a pair of trainers or something like that. There wasn't like that kind of, you know, um, sort of how it got later on in terms of, you know, living the high life and stuff like that. This was just the, the beginnings of it.
3: Elliot, what was the um, well? Two questions: the the motivating factor for you, and reading the book, and even just hearing you talk. And um, thank you, mate, for being so honest. As I, I know that revisiting stuff from your past can be difficult, but um, it's it's definitely a fascinating one. But was was like you come across as highly intelligent in this book, and uh, do you ever look back and go, I? Could have been challenged to do something different if only someone had noticed that I was capable. Um, you know, so the motivating factor for um, ending up getting into credit card fraud and was well, there maybe a bit of blame on the side of these eight schools that you were a part of, but didn't notice that you were highly intelligent and could be driven towards something if someone had sparked something inside you.
2: So I'll I'll, I'll, I'll try and answer your questions in order, right? So see in terms of like. This is something that has taken me a long time to actually understand and realise what went wrong, you know. Um, the, the, the first question, obviously, about, um, you know, what was the motivating factor. Um, I remember when I was a kid, right, and I, I was at school, and there was, as I said to you, what would happen is, each school that I went to, I would be friends with some people for a short period of time, but then they'd get fed up with me for one reason or another. I'll probably never be able to answer the question as to what the reason for that was, but what I do know is that I soon became aware that people are motivated by money. so my my I, th- I think and again this isn't something I would have known at the time really, but if I, well probably if I'd thought about it at the time i could have I could have came up with the answer but looking back in, at it in retrospect, it's clear to see that I was of the opinion that if I could if I could have money that I would be able to buy people things and in turn buy their friendship and their loyalty. And obviously that is something that, you know, I'm sure we, you guys all know as well, it doesn't work like that in life, you know, because all you do is you attract the wrong attention and the wrong people. But it, even there were people that I met throughout the whole time that, you know, that weren't, that st- some of them are still friends now, only one or two to be fair, but that weren't interested in that. But I I'd attract a lot of people into my life who were, Even, they didn't know what I was doing, obviously, but they just thought that I had lots of money and that I was the guy who would walk into the pub and buy everyone champagne or pay for cocktails for the full place, you know. And that was the kind of thing that I would do because it made, having went so long in my youth without having any friends around me, it made me feel that these people were friends, even if it was just for a short period of time, it made me feel that way. So I think there is an aspect to that. There is also the aspect of that for a long time I thought there was something wrong with me. And that I wasn't, you know, I wasn't worthy of having friends because there must be something up with me. So I think there was a part of it that made me feel better as well, just like being able to go out and splash out in material things that, you know, I don't even have anything from that time really so it's like it's not as if it made any, any difference to my life but as a as a as a young adult and a teenager it made me feel good even just for a short space of
3: time these things become outward symbols don't you so they you think that the perception of you uh, is defined by having the good gear or buying people the shorts or having the, the champagne bottles so for some reason before like you you know I mean I'm 34 now um yeah before you realise that, you think that this is the importance that you you have in the world when it comes to materialistic things, or how much money you've got, or what you can achieve through monetary terms, when in actual fact, you know, we, we all realise as time goes on that that's not the most important thing.
2: It's definitely not. I mean, like, to be honest with you, there is still a wee bit of that in me, even today. I mean, I was uh, round seeing a couple of friends last week, socially distanced, of course. <laughs> Yo, I need to add that whenever I tell anybody this. But that's,
3: that's not going to me anytime soon. It, is it?
0: It, it, it It wouldn't be the worst crime discussed necessarily. Don't
3: worry. <laughs> We've not even got to Shane yet.
2: <laughs> so my, my 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 best mate um, got married last year, and I was I was round seeing them a, few, a couple of weeks ago, and his wife, who is she's just um, a really cool person. She's she's able to kind of put a stop on you and say, "Hold on a minute." Do you realise that actually maybe it was this? You know she's quite a, she's quite um, like she's got a good a good way of thinking about things, and um, she was like that. She says, "Do you not realise that see, like, because um, they know me really well, they've known me for years, you know, and they know that like I'm the type of person who I do still think sometimes that it's nice to show people that you appreciate them." Mm-hmm. She was saying it doesn't have to be from buying us a gift or anything financial kind of thing. Do you know what I mean? And when she said that, I was like, it made me think about you know what maybe I'm still thinking sometimes in that way that I do need to, because I I was quite honest with her and I said, you know, the thing is it terrifies me the prospect of losing friends because you, you mean so much to me and they really do, you know, but the fact that I think that because of the fact I never had any friends when I was younger for a long, long time, it makes me, as it's terrifying for me, the prospect of maybe me doing something stupid and losing a friend, you know? Yeah. And I need to relax about that because at the end of the day, um, you know we're really, really close, and I don't have to worry about that because you know I'm not likely to do anything that's going to piss them off so much that we wouldn't and we wouldn't be friends anymore. So,
3: I, I get what you're saying, mate. There's uh, there's there's things that needle in my head, even though when I know I'm recovered from some stuff. I'll I'll still sit there and I'll let it I'll let it uh, vibrate around my mind, and I'll be like. Why, why the fuck have I just spent half an hour thinking about this when it's the completely wrong thing to think about in life? Um, but it does it does, uh, does, make sense. Um, so the, the second part of that question then, the... Oh, James, I, I, you're shitting on the story, man. <laughs> I'm just like, tell us more of the story. Nah, Stop
1: asking deep emotional questions. I want to hear the story. We're teasing the book. At this point,
3: Shane said, so uh, we'll adjust. get we'll get to more of the story." I just get, I, I, when I'm reading the story, I'm thinking, I'm going, "This guy is like, you know, he's got a photographic memory. He's very intelligent. Why is there not like some, uh, you know, what the uh, uh, what's it, the Dead Poet Society? You know, <laughs> like why is there not a teacher that's inspiring Him to, to do stuff? And uh, that will come clear in a question that I want to ask at the end, you know." I mean, um, to, to
2: answer your question, just briefly, then I mean, do I? I mean you can assign blame for a portion of it you know but at the end of the day as human beings we always have our own decision to make as to whether or not we do something you know um it's I think sometimes you do you do get lost in your thoughts and I'm not just talking about this I'm talking about in in any any aspect of life you make we all make wrong decisions at times mine were huge (laughs) you know but um, having thought about it over the last few years I think that there was a lot of things wrong with the way that the education system processed me as an individual because they sent me to a special school at one point and it was full of kids that were you know running about punching the walls and that was never me I never had any issues like that you know. Um, I had two two teachers in my whole time all the different schools who treated me like a, like a proper person you know. I had a history teacher at one of my secondary schools who Um, took me aside one day, and he obviously saw that I was having a hard time and finding it difficult, and he said to me, listen, he said, you, he said, what you need to understand about you is, he says, you're just a bit different, you're just a bit eccentric, that's all, there's nothing wrong with you, you know, and that that made me feel a lot better, you know, so he became, like, a confidant at that school, and as a result of that, history's been one of my favourite subjects ever since, I don't know if you've found that happens, the the good teachers are the, the subjects that you ended up quite liking, you know.
3: Economics for me.
2: Was it?
3: Yeah,
2: so I had another teacher, Fiona Mackay, as well, who was an absolute star. and um, I've actually I met her for the first time, and God, it must have been twenty, twenty-five years. Um, about two years ago, and I, I thought I remembered the phone number from like all that time ago. God <laughs> knows how, but I just remembered it, and uh, I phoned the number, and she answered, and I was like, "Is that Fiona?" And she said, "Aye," and I said, "It's Elliot Castro here." And she's like, "Elliot, how are you doing?" Blah blah blah, you know. So. I went, I says, listen, would you let me take you for lunch? I took her for lunch and I, I gave I gave her a huge bunch of flowers and I wrote a wee card saying, I just want to say thank you so much for what you did because you were a light in my life at a time when things were very dark. Amazing. You know, and she, she burst into tears and so did I because it was just, it was really emotional, you know, but I think teachers have got the power to be a really positive force in your life, but I had a couple of arsehole teachers as well who were the complete opposite and made my life absolute hell, you know, yeah. and... I I don't know how they they got away with it, you know, but as as I say, I'm not, you know, you can't, you can't keep thinking about, oh, what could have been, what could have been, what could have been, but the short answer to your question is, yes, I do assign some blame to them because I think they should, they should have had some, some course that they could have put me on or some, some way they could have sorted, sorted things out to maybe put me in a more, I don't know, a school for people who are a bit more creative and things, because God knows I was good at telling a bloody story. That was for
3: sure. And this brings us back to... Sorry, this brings us back to what Ah. Shane really wants to hear. (laughs) So you're 16... Shut up, James! You're you're 16, you've kind of... You know, there's there's teachers there that could have drove you forward uh, in a more productive way, but you're obviously heading towards something different. you just elaborate a wee bit more over the next uh, five or six years then?
2: So, So basically, what happened as a result of the... The whole thing with the call centre and all the details, um, basically that taught me that people would give their details away if they were confident that, that they were supposed to be giving them to you. So where that went was, I at the time fell out with my parents, um, I was always falling out with them, not because of any reason other than I was just doing things that they didn't want me to. I mean I was 15, 16 years old and I was going out and sometimes not coming back till 1 2 o'clock in the morning. Um, you know. I'm very grateful that I always had, there was a lot of love in our household, you know we didn't have much but there was a lot of love, Um, you know, my parents looked after us and they had their problems too, they fell out quite a lot and stuff like that but as far as me and my brother were concerned, we always had clothes on our back, we always had food on the table and we always had a roof over our head, so we didn't really, you know, we didn't suffer in that regard but um, I was just a teenager, you know, and teenagers you you end up, you can be a wee arsehole when you're a teenager, you know, Uh, you think you know everything, doesn't matter what anyone else tells you, you know the best thing and that's it, you know. So I was about probably 17 or 18 and I decided to up sticks and go down to Manchester. Why Manchester, I really don't know. But I I, I left the job, obviously, I took this um, um, notepad with all the details in it and buggered off and then over the next, I don't know, two or three years I just spent traveling all over the place but the notebook that I had obviously the, the details in that that notebook you know they weren't going to be uh, around forever and
3: slowly but surely they diminished and I was I was left with you know nothing. So this was um for anyone that hasn't read the book this was details that allowed you to access credit cards um oh, of was- people and then subsequently amounts of money off those credit cards but you you were burning through them at a rate that this one that one, um, which in itself is very fucking clever. <laughs> but
2: it because I obviously didn't have anywhere else to stay, and the thing was, uh, a lot of the time, the only way for me to get physical cash was to go into a pub and get cash back. You know, mm. so to a pub and get fifty quid cash back, and you go in another pub. Or you know, I used to know exactly from looking at the credit card terminal what the floor limit on it was and how much it would allow you to go through without connecting to the bank. So sometimes even if a card was it was cancelled, I would still be able to, to get money off it If I knew a certain machine, um, you know, a lot of them had limits So like if it was over £50, it would connect to the bank So if you just went in, you would, you would buy a drink and you would get £40 cash back, you know So I mean, how,
3: how did you know this stuff? Did, was it just through experience or did you, like, you know, st- <laughs> study it? I <laughs> don't know
2: well, It was just through trial, really, you know like you got to there was different types of terminals, you know. Obviously it's all chip and pin now, but back then it was all Max type transactions. So you would you would get to know and then eventually what would happen is as well, if a card was cancelled and it kept getting used, then every couple of months or something the terminals would get updated with all these card numbers that shouldn't go shouldn't be allowed to go through, so you would no longer be able to use them, you know. It's,
3: can can I ask a little bit about your mentality then? Because that, just from my perspective, I you're the, even... you're the
1: worst listener I've ever heard, James. <laughs> well, I'm just like getting into it, and James like tell me about cheese. I no, know. no, <laughs> I'm, I can't even return
3: cloves. I can't even return cloves. Or if they've asked me ever to sign in my bank card, I'm like I'm shaking myself. You know. So, like, were you never like terrified when you walked up with someone's uh, credit card and try to swipe it through?
2: I mean, yeah, you would, you would, like. I mean, it was all there was always a chance it could go wrong. You know, every time you did it, it could go wrong. But I was, I was really good at it, so I, I knew that it was, it was basically the chances were small. Because what I would do is I had safeguards in place as well to make sure that I was doing everything I can or everything I could rather to make sure that that the chances were very slim that anything would go wrong. So especially later on when it became like the big money, you know, getting into jewelers and buying Rolexes and things like that. At that point in time, that was that was really quite serious. And obviously what I would do, I had little, as I say, safeguards. So for example, I'll just run you through a couple of them. So if I was traveling anywhere, if I was going on a flight, I would always phone. So this was before the internet was the way it is now, right? You would book flights. A lot of people still book flights on the phone. So I would phone up the airline and I would say to them, so say if it was uh, British Airways, for example, I'd phone up British Airways and I'd say, hi, it's Craig here from the desk at, at Glasgow Airport. Um, our systems are down at the moment and I'm just wondering if you could check a booking for me. So they would then go and type in the booking reference and come back and say, so what is it you want to know? And I would just say, um, you know, what class is it in or whatever. Just something. But sometimes they would come back, well, it only happened once or twice, but they would come back and say, um, actually, there's a marker on that booking. It's potentially fraud. So that that happened uh, towards the end of the time, uh, and I just basically booked a flight from a different airport. You know, so there was little things like if I stayed in a hotel as well, I would always knock the door before I went into the room. Just I would knock the door and say, "Housekeeping," just to see if there was anyone in the room.
1: Fucking um, hell! Just Is that, that, uh, so
0: go on sorry, I,
2: I was. There's
0: that. It's nice, like kind of what James has said there about. Like being terrified and stuff in the book, it seems to almost go out its way to not not glamorize it, but to point out those kind of stresses and anxieties. Like about, oh, I was really terrified when this happened, and I was really terrified when that happened. And there's also like beautiful naivety. Like this sounds like, and it is. It's like this is a fucking massive scam that's going on, worth thousands of money. But the first time you went abroad, it was what four grand on flights to Toronto. But you bought clothes, assuming that it was going to be freezing. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> so, so you, and it's the height of summer. So you've pat, you've go, you've spent a fortune on fucking winter clothes, expecting to walk out and it's like snowy fucking utopia. <laughs> but you still got this like teenage naivety where you just you don't grasp that. And I think that's what's just so fucking remarkable about the story is that you forget that you're you are essentially just like a wee guy when you're doing all this.
2: It's funny because see now when I meet people that are that age. I think I, it, when I meet folk that are, you know, young young guys that are like 16, 17, 18 years old and I'm like, I just shake my head sometimes because <laughs> it's, it, you know, it is, it's to, even to me, like sometimes self-analysis is difficult, but just when you look back you think, a fucking bullshit me bastard I was, you know? <laughs> the, 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 just the, 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 the nerve to go and do half the things I did, you know? And if, do you know the fact is? That, see, even now, right, I, I wouldn't do it now because I'd be frightened out my nut. I wouldn't be able to, but I think part of the reason for that as well is because, see, back then, I didn't have anything to lose, you know, I didn't feel like I had anything to lose, so it's, it's easy to, to just go and take mega chances like that when you don't have anything to lose, you know, and that's how I felt about my life at the time, now I've got so much to lose, you know, and I don't just mean from going back to crime, because I, I would never do that again, but just like decisions that I make on a daily basis, You know, am I going to speed down the road and overtake that guy or not? And I don't because I know that it's not worth the risk, you know? So.
1: It sounds like you were kind of uh, almost kind of pushing your luck a little bit and seeing how far you could take it. So you were saying just then, like, you know, Rolexes and stuff, how much bigger did it get? Like, so you've gone to Toronto on a trip. How much bigger does it get than that?
2: So I think probably in terms of like money value and like, you know, impressive purchases if you want to put it like that uh, I lived in Belfast for a while stayed there for about a year and at one point um, I went to just for no reason I didn't I didn't even have a driving license at the time but I got a taxi to take me down to the BMW showroom in Belfast and I was looking at I think it was a 7 series or something it was a top of the range BMW at that moment in time anyway this would have been 2004 so I think it was like a, I looked at a 5 series and was it an 8 series I can't remember anyway <laughs> and eh, so I had—I didn't know how to drive, right, so the salesman's like that, he said, do you want to take it for a test, and I was like, yeah, yeah that sounds great, and eh, and then I says to him, you know, he's like, why don't you go jump in, and I was like, "Ah, but I don't have a driving license on me, <laughs> he's like, that's fine, I was like, no, no, do you know what, would you mind driving it, <laughs> he's like, if you want, so see now, looking back on that, I'm like, who fucking goes to take a car for a test drive and asks the salesman to fucking drive it, you know, <laughs> But anyway, we got back to the showroom and I bought the car. It was like thirty seven and a half grand or something. It was.
3: Did you ever pick it up?
2: <laughs> got arrested. <laughs> so there, you know, you're arrested for driving without a license. <laughs>
3: <laughs> Try to hire that guy as a chauffeur. <laughs> what? Well, um, you must have a few other mental stories like that as well. Then, um, during the peace.
2: Yeah, I mean, there's there's, there's 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 quite a few. I mean, I'm just trying to think of the. the ones that are maybe the most interesting, but um, so the I bought I bought a Rolex out of a, a jeweller in Edinburgh, and it was a careful setup because I, I knew that you couldn't just go in. Well, you could, but it was it was easier and it was it was more plausible to do it the way I did it, which was rather than just going in and saying I want that Rolex here, and I believe it was about twelve and a half thousand pound if I remember right. I think the same watch now is a lot more twenty grand or something, but that's how much it was then. And I went in, and the it was a female clerk. She came over to me and says, "You know, can I help you?" And I says, "What well, it is? Um, I am. have been sent here by the, the directors of our company. One of the directors is retiring, so as a golden handshake, they decided to present him with a Rolex watch." And she's like, "Oh, great! We'll come over here and I'll show you." So she starts showing me the watches, and I before I even went, I knew exactly which one it was that I wanted. Um, but she started showing me all these different models and stuff and tried. I said, Do you mind if I try them on? I says, I might never get to wear one of these again, you know. So she's like, Aye, on you go. So I said, Right, what I'll need to do is, if you don't mind, to take a photo with my phone. I said, "You know, will when I get back to the office tomorrow, I'll, I'll show the directors and they'll, they'll make the final decision. I'll be in touch. And she's like, No problem. So she gave me her card, went away. The next day phoned up and said yep they've decided to go for that one um, Could you have it ready for me and i'll come in in about half an hour she said that's fine it'll be ready for you when you come in and i said do you take american express and she says "Yep, that's no problem so i got off the phone to her phoned american express pretended to be the card holder and i said right maybe and just to let you know, because Amex used to have this wonderful thing where you could phone them and tell them that you were making a purchase, and they would guarantee that it would go through for you. So there was never any question in my mind about whether the card would get referred or anything like that. So I went and uh, went and back in and picked up the, the, the watch, uh, paid for it, it went straight through, signed the slip, and that was it. Um, when I left the store, I don't think I've ever been as excited in my life. Um, I was walking down George Street in Edinburgh. This bag, and I just I, I couldn't wait to get somewhere, but I was like, I can't just open it in the middle of the fucking street. So, so I went into this uh, this this uh, cafe or restaurant or whatever on George Street, and this way just came over and she's like, can I get you something? I was like, just get me anything. I don't care what it is. Just get me just a drink. It's like a coffee. That's that's fine. That'll do. So she's away, and then she comes back over, um, and I'm just opening the box, and it was like, she's like, that's a nice watch, and I says, I know. <laughs> so well, and that was that was a, uh, it was it was I mean, it was beautiful. You know, I can't. I, I'm not gonna <laughs> say I enjoy sticking that watch in my because I fucking did. It was lovely, you know, solid gold, and it was, oh you know, whether or not I ever get a chance to wear another one again, we'll we'll see. You know, but it's a nice thought. So, <laughs> were the I, credit
1: cards and stuff, paying the 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 bills and stuff. So, were you paying rent with these credit cards as well? Well, how were you sorting that? Like, did you have to work and have this mad hustle on the side, or were you just? Full credit card fraud, living the dream.
2: Uh, it was all cards, cards, cards. I mean, I, 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 didn't. The only thing that I was interested in the time at uh, the time was was music. That was the only other thing. You know, I mean, I had a, a CD wallet with about 500 CDs in it that used to go everywhere with me. Like, you know, and whatever hotels I stayed in, I would phone them in advance and ask them to get a CD player in the room. That was that was the 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 only other thing that I had a love for, but other than my family, of course. But um, in terms of working, no, I didn't, I didn't do any work. Um, I think probably when, I, when I, 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 the first place that I actually rented a flat, because um, I'd stayed in service apartments and stuff before this, but they'd always been paid with credit cards and things. Um, one night I was in Glasgow and I bumped into uh, a famous DJ um, in the Art, Art House Hotel, I think it was, in the bar, this was like at two o'clock in the morning or whatever, and he was with all his mates and we ended up having a few drinks together. They came up to my room um, after the bar closed and we all sat and had a drink in the room and there was like all this my Louis Vuitton luggage and everything in the room. So they must have thought I was like some kind of, I don't know, just some rich playboy or whatever. And um, they ended up asking me, you know, you should, you should come over to Belfast if, at some point and see us. So I did, I went over and had a, a great time. They were really, really sound people, you know. So I ended up thinking, right, I would quite like to, to stay here, you know. So I, I rented a flat in Belfast, right in the middle of the town, penthouse apartment. Fucking stunning and uh, that was when I started partying loads and drinking loads and just getting getting on it all the time so but that was also the time when the most money happened because i I worked out another another uh, scam that you know I could use which was basically well I don't know if you know this right but if you have certain types of cards like um see if you've got like a platinum mastercard or something like that and you go overseas and you lose your card then a lot of the times they'll have a service where you can phone up and ask for emergency funds to be transferred to you so when I became aware of this I was like that's brilliant I need to use that so I would phone up and pretend to be this person and say that I'd lost my passport I don't have any ID and then what they would do is they would wire money with a test question so in order to get the money all you had to have was the transfer number and the answer to this test question so you would just turn up at a, a Western Union or a travel eh, what's the other one? money MoneyGram or whatever it was And basically, um, they would hand over the money. So, like, I was living in in Belfast at the time, and a lot of the cards, the only time they would actually let you use this service is if you were overseas. But obviously, the Republic of Ireland is another country. So I would say I was in Dublin, and then they would send the money. And what I would do is I I would sit on the phone for, like, a full day, phoning hotels, like, fancy hotels, really fancy hotels, like the Ritz and Dorchester and all these kind of places, and get. Like, um, you know, people's personal details and then phone up and do this thing where they would send money. So one time I went down to Dublin and I picked up, I think, if I remember correctly, it was about 35 grand um, in one day. Just spent the whole day going around all these Western Union locations, picking up cash and uh back up to Belfast and stuck it in the wardrobe in the room, you know? So that was that was crazy. But the, the problem was at that point that I'd started drinking a lot and I wasn't really... I think... People ask me, why do you think it went, why do you think it went awry? And I think the reason for that is because I, I actually had enough of it. You
3: know, you, you want to. There's one thing that when, um, because I, I identified a lot of what, um, what I read off the pages of this is, um, you know, that kind of felt like you were addicted at some points to, you know, um, getting these credit cards, and nothing was gonna uh, sway your mind um, from from getting them. You know, you're coming out of really bad situations. You're like, I want the next one. Like me, when I was gambling, you know, I was uh, fucking losing loads of money, and I was going, "It's okay, I can pick up the next one." But there was a point when I was gambling where I just wanted to hit that self-destruct button. I was like, "This all needs to end," and I'm going to have to do something drastic for it to get there. Is that kind of the mentality you felt?
2: I I mean I, I don't know if I could have put it any better myself. Um, what, what what happened with me was that um, there was a couple of people that I got to know really well when I was in Belfast that we became I became really good friends with, you know. Um and I mean to put you in mind, like I was living a lie, you know, like people that knew me, like so I was friends like with one guy in particular. I won't say his name just out of respect and privacy for him, but um There was one guy that I became really, really friendly with, like he was probably at that point the best friend I'd ever had in my life. But it was depressing for me because he didn't really know who I was. And, you know, I used to tell stories about, because people would obviously ask you when you're living that kind of lifestyle, like, what what do you do for a living? You know, and you can't turn around and go, well, I'm a fraudster, because that doesn't really cut it, you know. Um, So I told people that I was uh, involved in hotel consultancy management, because it made sense why I was staying in all these hotels. You know that was a, that was the best story I could come up with. Yeah. Uh, I was feeling a bit more fanciful. I would tell people that I worked for the Ministry of Defence, uh, leave <laughs> them to come to their own conclusions. You know, but uh, the the where it got to a problem for me was um, what basically happened at one point was this friend of mine, um, just call him John for example, right? He came up to me and said, "Listen," he said, "People are talking about you," and I said, "Oh, really? What are they saying?" And he said, "People are saying that you're up to no good," and I was he said, "Is that he said is that true?" And I said, no, of course not, of course not, don't don't be so silly. Um, and this friend of mine was with me when I finally got arrested. Um, he, he came over to Edinburgh. We, we, booked, we were supposed to go to Amsterdam. This was the time I was talking about earlier on when I phoned the airline and they said there was a fraud alert on that, that uh, ticket. So instead of going to Amsterdam, we ended up in, in fucking Edinburgh. Woohoo, you know. <laughs> but, uh, basically, we um, went to Edinburgh and we woke up the next morning and I said, listen, I'm going to pop out for half an hour, but we'll back shortly. And the reason I did that was because I knew exactly what was going to happen that day, which was i was going to go to Harvey Nichols and I was going to buy loads of clothes. But I couldn't let him potentially see what card I was using if it was in someone else's name. So I went across to Harvey Nichols and passed over this Amex card. And uh, it was like, I to buy gift vouchers from a customer service desk. So I was like, can I have £2,000 worth of gift vouchers, please? Um, and so she started putting it through and then she was like, have you got any other ID? It's a fair question, you know, you're buying me vouchers, But I was like, I was like, do you know what? I actually don't. I says, but it's fine. I says, what to do? I says, it's phone American Express. They'll clear everything up. They'll tell you it'll be absolutely fine. So she's got on the phone to Amex, who then spoke to me. I've answered all her questions. All good. Puts the phone down. She hands me the vouchers. And that's, as far as I was concerned, that was the end of it. So I went back to the, the hotel, picked up my mate. I was like, i hey, let's go and we'll have a look at some clothes. Because he was right into his fashion and that as well. So went into Harvey Nicks with these vouchers and uh, unbeknownst to me what had happened in the meantime was that I'd left and she had ended up phoning American Express back and saying listen something's not right with this I've just got a feeling that something's not right and Amex then phoned the real cardholder who was like nah there's no fucking way I did not buy £2,000 of gift vouchers out of Harvey Nicks. So all that had happened in the meantime and I was oblivious to that so me and my mate arrived, went up to the menswear department. The manager who always used to come out and see me because every time I went in, he would come out because I would spend like two or three grand a time. used to come out and see us. So he's like, walking around and I was like, you know, just giving it, I'll try this, I'll try that, I'll try that. And you, that's what he used to do, go around the whole menswear, and and I would just try loads of stuff on and take the stuff I liked. So at one point, we we're about halfway around and uh, I says to him, i just going to go and use the toilet. So I went into the toilet, locked the cubicle and uh, about three or four minutes later, I was like that ah, shit. <laughs> um, so I've opened the door, and this guy was standing there. And he's like, he's basically like, took my arm. He's like, we need to speak to you for a minute. So he's he's took me out, and there was I've talked myself out of loads of situations with with police officers where I should have been arrested. Maybe at least three or four times, I have managed to talk my way out of it. But this time was different because I had about six or seven different identities in my wallet. And um, So there was no there was no way I was getting out of it this time, you know. But in all fairness, the, the worst thing that came out of this was I've walked out of the toilet with this police officer holding my arm. I've came out and I've saw my mate with another police officer holding his arm. And he'd done fuck all, you know. He didn't know. He really didn't. And he just looked at me and went like that. And I was like, it broke my heart because even just thinking about it now to be honest with you because I knew that as soon as that happened he knew You know, he believed me when he'd asked me are you up to something and I'd said no and he believed me about that and obviously that made clear to him that that wasn't the case You know, and uh, he didn't speak to me for until about I don't know five years ago roughly I made contact with him on Facebook and uh, I saw him for the first time it uh, wasn't last year but the year before he came over to Glasgow with his missus Um, you know but I always it upsets me a bit because I wonder what could have been there you know like we were really tight you know really really tight and uh, you know it was just obviously he ended up having to get his parents to pay for a flight home and everything it's just so you know I thought some people say do you think it was a victimless crime and I say well you know truthfully I'm not really that bothered about the banks Like, as far as I'm concerned, they screw people over every day. I'm not saying that that makes it right what I did, but it's hard for me to feel sorry for them. Who I feel sorry for are people who picked up their statements and saw that, you know, they'd spent five grand that they hadn't spent, and my mate who ended up, you know, losing a friend that he had confided in and believed, and my family who were losing their minds because I kept getting arrested, you know. So it wasn't completely victimless, but... um, that's that's kind of the, the things I feel bad about are the, the the people who who did suffer as a
3: result of what I did, you know. And that's a very, that's a- a very isolating life, isn't it, Shane? Do you want oh. go say something? There?
1: Yeah, I was just going to say, like, so when you, you you heard that knock on the toilet door, had you been expecting that? Like, had like surely you know you'd been doing it for a couple of years? Had you got over that fear, or did that fear get worse? And and was there a relief once that had happened because you'd kind of gone well, fuck, you yeah. know, I no longer have to stress out. I no longer have to fear yeah. the worst because it's happened.
2: I think, I think what, because, um, I mean, that was like the final time I got arrested, you know, um, and I spent, so I got, what basically happened after that was I got sent on remand to a prison in Edinburgh. I was there for two weeks. The cops had fucked something up, so my lawyer got me out, and the first, that whole two weeks, I was in, I was very upset. I was in tears almost every day because I realised how much I'd lost that time, and that was the, Genuinely the first time that I felt I'd lost something because I had made a couple of genuine friends. Um, You know, so that was the first time that I felt a sense of loss over my own actions. Um, I got released out of prison and there was two police officers waiting there to take me down to Manchester for a warrant for um, uh, an incomplete incomplete probation order. I got to court there. They gave me a court lawyer. He was shit, so I sacked him and I had to give my own case to the court and they believed everything I said and let me out again. But taken downstairs and there was another police officer there this time to take me to London. And that was where this guy, this detective who'd been chasing me for the last five years and putting all the bits and pieces together and um, came into the, the cell to get me and take me down to London to face my charges. And uh, he came into the room and it was the most weird and weird thing that's ever happened because most of the time the police arrest you and they're, they're, you know they're just huckling you and that's it they don't really want to speak to you or whatever he came into the room and shook up well, into the cell I should say and shook my hand and he was like I've been looking for you you know
3: <laughs> so we mentioned catch me if you can at the was it kind of like that Frank having there when the, the Tom Hanks Leonardo DiCaprio moment like ah this has been a relationship that both of you have had for over the years
2: I'd never met him you know I'd never yeah. spoken wasn't Like that where he'd spoken to him on the phone and all that that hadn't happened, but I knew he was after me, yeah I can't, was it some someone had let and in fact that's what it was um so i'll tell you this my story as well because' I think it's quite funny um I got arrested in Canada and I was jailed over there for a period of time as well I'm not going into the reasons why, but just basically it was the same thing it was fraud, and what happened at the end was uh, I got ordered to be deported from Canada and they don't tell you when you're being deported for security reasons, right? I think it's something in case you, someone tries to stop the deportation or something, I don't know, but they never, they never tell you. So I was like, I need to know when I'm getting out of here because the jails over there are horrific, you know, like it's a different world over there. But what basically happened was I got on the phone to a uh, Canadian immigration right, from the jail, and when they've answered the phone, I've put on a really stiff upper lip British accent and I was like, it's uh, you know, whoever calling from the British Embassy and uh, we're, at, we're calling to inquire about Mr. Castro. Can you tell us anything? Do, do you know when he's being deported? Blah, blah, blah. So this guy from Immigration is like, oh yeah, Mr. Castro, he's going out on Monday the 24th or whatever it was. And, uh, and we've got a note here to contact Detective Ralph Eastgate. He's uh, Heathrow police. And I was like, don't worry about that. The embassy will take care of that for you. And he was like, ah, oh, that's great, thank you. That's something I don't have to worry about. And I was like, <laughs> <laughs> so, but then what happened was they put you on the plane when you're being deported, right? You get somebody that takes you up to the plane and puts you on the plane. So I've sat down in the seat and they give like a, it's like an envelope that had like a proper like wax seal and a bit of string around it. So I've never seen anything like it in life. And um, they give that to the, the purser on the plane, and what's supposed to happen is when you get to the destination, he's supposed to escort you to customs and hand over your documents just to explain you've been deported or whatever, right? So on the plane, he came over, he's like, what happened? And I was like, oh, you know what, man? I got a bit drunk and ended up in a fight. That was basically it. You know, he's like, oh, he says, listen, it could have happened to anyone, you know? So he was like on my side and he handed, before we got off the plane, he was like, here, just take this. He says, you don't need me. He says, it's fine, just don't need me. And I was like, thank fuck for that. But I'll tell you what, (laughs) that walk through the airport, right, couldn't get out fast enough, man. I was just like, because obviously I still couldn't be sure that that contact hadn't been made. Yeah. My knowing, you know, because there's always always something that you don't know. Do you know what I mean? That's that's like the woman in the shop, she knew something and there's no way I could have done anything about that. There's no way I could have known, except for the fact maybe if I hadn't been so bloody cocky about it, she might not have had that feeling. But so... Walked through the airport and basically um, managed to get out of the airport and I was brassic. I mean, they'd taken all my cash and everything off me in Canada. It'd been uh, awarded to the crown or some shit like that, you know. So um, when I got back to the UK, I had no money. My parents, obviously, I didn't want to phone them and ask them for money. But when I looked in the envelope that they'd given me, there was like the airline ticket that the Canadian immigration had paid for, complete with a credit card number. (laughs) So I phoned up. Basically, a courtesy of Canadian immigration, and uh, that was basically you know what happened there. So um, yeah, so <laughs>
3: that's amazing.
0: The, the, the world burning all of a sudden really makes sense now. If this is like the people that are in charge of us, <laughs> think about Home Office and all that. It's fucking mental. Your your love of accents seems to really like come through, even in the early stages of the book. Is that is that just like part of the sport for you? It was just like developing characters and accents are just necessary at times
2: i just I just enjoyed it and it was like who will i be today you know i mean just like this was all about me being someone else right that's that's what it boils down to i, I wasn't happy with who i was so it allowed me to pretend that i was something else in my life you know and it says it honestly took me a long time to get over that and just be happy with who i am you know i'm still not 100% there if i'm totally frank with you you know i still get times where i'm Pissed off with myself And I think What the fuck You've wasted your life And you know And I know that's not the case Deep inside I know that that's not the case You know I can't You can't spend your life Filled with regret For the things that you did Especially with the things That you did When you were a teenager You know It's um, part and
3: parcel Of your journey mate And I don't think You're alone In thinking that You know You've, you've lived a, a, a Much different life Than a lot of people But someone that's just Bounced from job to job You know Out of college Into uni or whatever they are, They're having The exact mm-hmm. same thoughts um, you know, um, self analysing so I'm saying, What the fuck am I doing in my life? Um, see if you could throw it into monetary terms for us, uh, how much do you think that you had passed through your hands, uh, so to speak, over that period?
2: So it's a difficult one to answer precisely, and the reason for that is because, as I'm sure you can imagine, I wasn't very keen on keeping records, yeah. <laughs> so, but- <laughs> So all all I can go on really is what the police estimate was uh, when my case was presented at court in in uh, two thousand and four, and what they they reckoned it was around about two point five million pounds roughly. Um, wow. So that's that's what they thought. Now I mean, see see one thing that you realise when when you hear that is you realise how easy it is to spend money, <laughs> you know, especially when it's not yours. But the two and a half million pounds is what they said. I think. I've asked myself the question many times. I can't. I can't really elaborate on it because I don't know. I just know it was a lot of money, you know.
3: Yeah. So, I, is I, it? Is was it a case that you just needed to burn through it? Even when you were talking about having the cash reserves, you're like, you're you never thinking long term. Oh, savings account. How can I? How can I get this into a wee nest egg?
2: No, definitely not. I mean, what what actually happened was I had set up uh, Swiss bank accounts and monies had been sent there, like numbered accounts. You know. But unfortunately, um, I lost all the details of those when I got arrested because everything was in the flat. So, uh, I lost. I mean, there's money sitting there. I'm not, I don't think there's any way I'll ever be able to get it because the criteria of being able to access the account is so strict that it's impossible.
3: That's but just like, going to be there for the rest of the time
2: well, somebody will get it one day, you know. <laughs>
3: <laughs> just a wee bonus for a Swiss banker. That's like a story of Bitcoin. A guy invested in Bitcoin very early as part of his thesis, then threw away the hard drive, and then ended up searching through this landfill every single day because on that hard drive was about £20 million worth of Bitcoin. I I'm just like, ah, imagine that would just be a life of regret every single day. <laughs> well, every
1: looks- time you look at the bin, eh, you'll be like, what the fuck? Goodbye, I did, I that? did I do
3: that?
2: I had a similar experience with something like that because uh, about it was something about two, I think it was two thousand and twelve, roughly. I went to a party and there was a girl over there. She she she, and she obviously knew a bit about my past, and she came over and she started asking me, what "Do you know about Bitcoin?" And I was like, "Actually, nothing." Blah blah blah, and I went away, and looked into it, and completely dismissed it. And uh, I don't. I'm sure I'm one of many, many thousands. Yeah. Of nah, a similar uh-huh. of that. You know, I, I, have you ever done the sum where you work out if you would bought like? a eh, hundred pound worth of bitcoin what it'd be worth now it's like millions you know yeah
3: don't worry torture myself thinking about that man i always do the dream world scenario of i've oh, ever the a time machine go back and invest in microsoft or something but I, honestly i don't think money would make me happy um truth be told um I mean, I'm, you know nowadays i just i just get on with things you know i
2: like i like my music stuff you know um into writing music and stuff for a few years now and I feel, I feel I'm finally starting to get somewhere with it you know so especially over the last three months it's, it's been great I took this studio on last year um, and uh, before the lockdown I hadn't really had a lot of time in it because of work you know and now I've got I've had the last three months in here so it's been great I've, I've had a lot of time for self-reflection and just kind of re-evaluating everything and you know coming to peace with myself a wee bit more so it's been good. It's
0: been a lot, a lot we've good. Uh, I listened to the single yesterday. So it was at the end of April. We released a Liberati, and it was this great, It's like fucking eighties techno, fucking excellent uh, tune. I so I I'd heard any of my stuff, but that's yes. good. So, are you planning on working on an album, or you, obviously you can't gig and tour just now? But so is that just the plan? in lockdown is just to make music. I've been doing a
2: I've been doing a live broadcast every Friday night, which I'm going to start after this, uh, and if it's over. And basically I do that every Friday night at half past eight. So how long I'm going to do that for will will really be dependent on how long people listen for you know but yeah. it's, been, it's been really cool um, I've, I've just set up in here I, I've, I've I decided not to do the whole video thing because I think everyone and their cat are doing you know uh, live broadcasts where they're jumping about crazy behind their decks and stuff where uh, the, the audio quality is not great either on Facebook and such like so I thought I'll just do it just audio and a lot of people listen to it for that reason because they can have it on in the background they're not required to sit and look at the screen you know um, in terms of like music that's coming up I've got a couple of tracks that are now finished and I'm just waiting. For them to get mastered and such like, um and uh, I've got a friend of mine who is in touch with uh, a couple of big DJs, and he's basically going to pass my tunes on to them because I'm good at I'm good at sitting writing tunes, but the bit I'm not so good at is like knowing where to send them and who to send them to for them to get any kind of notice and stuff like that. So, but um I've got obviously my, my Facebook page and my Instagram, my SoundCloud and stuff, and just need to, just need to keep making the tunes. You know, I keep saying to myself as long as the tunes are good. Something will happen with it, you know, and that's I'm I'm hoping that other people agree that they are decent enough, you know. So, but I miss I do miss DJ. I've got I've got to say I really do. I miss it because it's just you can sit in a studio and do it, but it's just not the same. You know, it's great people people chat away and all oh, that's a brilliant tune. What's that called? And it's great, you know, but it's just not the same. It's just the energy's not the same, you know. I just wish this lockdown would hurry up and finish, man. It's it's, it's
3: <laughs> don't we all? mate, don't we all? Who's, uh, who's your musical inspirations in? Who's your uh, the guys or girls that you follow? Um,
2: well, I mean, I'm, I've got a very eclectic taste in music, actually. That. I'm, I'm very grateful to my parents for that because they used to listen to all sorts. They'd have, like, Gees, Frank Sinatra and just, like, music from all different periods of time. So I think that's definitely something that's, that's influenced me. Uh, in terms of who influences me, I think I've got, like, if I was to look at kind of popular music, probably like the likes of George Michael, um, is one of my favourites. I was very sad for the, Probably the only pop star that's passed away that I felt deeply sad about mm-hmm. because it turns out, and after, I, I think, if you've seen the documentary about him, it turns out he was actually just an absolute Diamond there guy, you know. He used to, like, phone up, um, like, he, I think it was, he saw um, a couple on this morning and they were devastated because they couldn't afford IVF or something like that. And he phoned up anonymously and like paid for 30 grand or something for their IVF, you know. And it was just, he just, did things like that all the time. So, musically, um, I like a lot of disco, uh, a lot of 70s and 80s music. Um, probably if, you, if I had to say what decade, 100% the 80s is like, that's my go-to decade for music, you know. It's like all synthesizers and Crazy hairdos and quiffs and all that, you know
3: <laughs> There's definitely a resurgence of uh, And Shane, you obviously know this Because you work at Capital But the artists being influenced by the 80s In particular Dua Lipa and The Weeknd right now Those there's, there's big sim sounds coming through yep. like, I, I don't even know how to describe it But you hear it and you're like This is the 80s vibe, yep. man So it's, it's, it's coming oh, back I
2: love The Weeknd And um, Dua Lipa had a few great tracks as well Like I'm one of these people See, because I'm like I'm really into my music. I'll if I hear a song I like, I'm like straight on. Like who wrote that? Who produced it, What studio was it recorded at? And all that kind of stuff. I'm a Bit of a geek that way, but it's just because I like to know all the wee stories behind the tracks. Like see, like um, like the Michael Jackson Bad 25 video where they're interviewing like Quincy Jones and all the producers that were involved in that, and all the wee stories about how this track came together. and like I don't
3: know You probably see I got quite excited About it there But that's just <laughs> Nah Quincy's Quincy's a
1: brilliant guy I love the Me old mate Quincy He's a good guy he <laughs> ah, Quincy over. He has a barbie In the backyard He, he comes over for beers. Quincy
3: Me, Quincy chains. And Rashida Just chilling out You know Kidada <laughs> We're all we're all partying
0: Together in the backyard <laughs> Just to give you some ideas to how out of touch I am with pop culture, Quincy to me is a TV detective. <laughs>
3: <laughs> Quincy Quincy Jones is uh, he's a mogul in America, predominantly bigger in the nineties. Um, what was it he created um, label wise?
2: Well, he, he He produced Michael Jackson's first three albums: yeah. Off the Wall, Thriller, and Bad, um, with a guy from Cleethorpes called Rod Temperton, who was apparently the story was that. Um, Quincy Jones heard the music that he'd written and invited him over to America to work on an album with Michael Jackson. And he said he couldn't believe it when he opened the door and Rod Temperton was standing there and he was white. Cause he had some, <laughs> all his music was just like, pure, you know- like Soulful. Absolutely, you know, so he was, he, was, he was like, he couldn't believe it, you know. So there's I saw a lot of, in terms of musical influences, you know, I like my 80s stuff, I like disco music. I just, I love stuff with a nice groove. You know? Nice. Um, and that's that's I mean I don't always manage to emulate that myself, but I certainly give it my best shot, you know.
3: Definitely, mate. Definitely. Just just before we wrap up, cause I'm conscious
0: of time. Do you still is your family still in battlefield, Elliot?
2: Uh Well, my my parents have separated now. Sadly, they they split up about ten years ago, but uh, still very good friends, you know, which is which is great. And actually, it's a you kind now that it's over and done with. It's it's you know it's it's a lot better than it was before that happened sort of thing you know so they get right. on better now than they ever have but to answer your question um my parents still live in the south side but not in battlefield
0: anymore No, right. because i've been in battlefield for what three years three years in august i've been here and it's just been this dead weird reading the book just now and all, a lot of it centers, centers around your family home in battlefield and it's like the guy neil forsyth that writes it and he's writing a chapter about i think it's the first time he meets up with your mum and he's talking about battlefield in mount florida and it's like I fucking quite like Battlefield, man. You mean it, sound, <laughs> <making> it, sound, <laughs> it sounds? It sounds like the fucking Wire or something. It's, it's quite nice.
3: It's, it's came up. Has it changed a lot?
2: <laughs> one thing, actually. That you know, like, even the book was being written, right? I'll be honest with you. When the book was being written, I was meeting up with him, or we were doing interviews over the phone, right? And sometimes I was like still up for the night before partying and stuff. So I could, if I'd given, if I'd given that a bit more thought, I wouldn't have allowed it to go to press like that because it did, it made it seem as though we came for nothing I think, don't be wrong, I think he was trying to use artistic license just to I don't know, just to embellish things a little bit, you know, but that was one thing it did, I mean, even, I've not I'll be honest, I haven't read my book for a long time now and it's because I know it'll be painful when I pick it up I know there's, it'll be, not maybe not necessarily painful, but it will be emotional for sure um, and I keep thinking about it, I see it sitting on the shelf, and I, I keep going to pick it up, and I will, I'll pick it up maybe sometime soon, possibly, perhaps, maybe, and I'll sit and read it, and I, and I think that sort of thing will probably piss me off now, you know, because it's like, Battlefield's not a shithole, you know, there's like <laughs> areas in Glasgow that are far worse than Battlefield, 100%, you know, but I think i think that was the reason why, you know, you just taking it out of try and make it seem a bit more like rags to riches sort of thing, you know. Don't be wrong, we didn't have much when we were growing up, but we always we were always looked after, you know. So
3: uh, that's the, the old school parenting in Glasgow when you come from uh either lower class or lower middle class. Your parents always did right by you, no matter and I I sit and I look at it now and I'm like I'm maybe a bit selfish for my money, but see if I had kids, there's no way <laughs> that I would have lived the life that I lived You know, I'm a bit more frugal with money, but they always had stuff on the plate for us, always had great Christmases And you're like, how the fuck did they do that?
2: I mean, I, I've got a lot to thank my parents for, you know um, I know that some people might be of the opinion that, you know, well, you're obviously not that great because look what happened to you But, you know, I don't care what anyone says, you know, parents have a certain amount of influence over their children but when you get to an age where you start wanting to make decisions for yourself, it doesn't matter what the fuck your parents say if you're setting something. I think especially boys, I think we're terrible for it. You know, like we, we just we can be complete assholes. You know, and uh, I mean, I put my parents through some really hard times. You know, they I, I can't imagine what they went through thinking, fuck, my son's in prison. You know, could be getting bum raped or whatever. You know,
3: like, yeah.
2: Things like that. Sorry if that was a wee bit graphic, but you
3: know what I mean. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, that happens. Well, Elliot, why don't you because obviously there's a lot of uh a lot of uh, good funny stories and and amongst what you said there, but the reality was you ended up in, in prison. And what was what was that like? It's uh you know, it's scary as fu- I have I have dreams. I have dreams sometimes of getting in, uh, in prison and I'm like, this this would be it for me, I couldn't survive that scenario.
2: It is shite. I mean there's no other way to put it, it is it is not nice, you know. Like, I mean, it's not meant to be nice, don't get me wrong. You know, you do something wrong, you go to jail, you've got to say, well, you know what, I fucked up. This is, this is what I pay for doing that. But um, the prisons in this country, now, obviously, they probably have changed quite a lot since the last time I set foot in one. But, um, you know, they, were, they weren't they that bad. Like, it was horrible because you you lose your freedom, you know. Young offenders, because that was the first type of prison I went to. Um, if you're aged between 18 and 21, you go to YOI. Uh, and that was that was quite hard because again it was mixing with people my own age and pff, I didn't have anything in fucking common with them at all most most of them you know was a lot of scumbags in there that like raped grannies and stuff like that and done all sorts of really really nasty things and I, I actually a conversation with my friend I mean like see everything I did I know now when I look back on it I beat myself up for years about it but I know now that when I look back on it and the one thing I know is that I never intentionally set out to hurt anybody no, you know what I mean, and I know that. So I've got, I've managed to cast off that that I'm a bad person and all that kind of crap. But prisons in Canada, my God, man, mental. I mean, I've, you, you, it's a completely different thing over there. You know, like you just you're locked in a cell twenty four hours a day, pretty much. Jesus. You, you get out for your meals and that, and like you basically get your meal on a tray flung in, flung in a cage. You know, so you're allowed out of your cell into this external cage, uh-huh. and put your meals in there. And there was like I was very fortunate because I got in. I got in with the guys that ran the wing. It was like a group of Portuguese guys, and they were like the, the guys that ran the wing. You know, they were fucking deciding what happened and mm-hmm. all the rest of it. So I got in. I made a wee deal with them where I would arrange for their missus to go and pick up money outside, and then they, they would they would provide me with fucking tobacco and stuff like that. So, um, so that was fine. I I, I worked out there because it could have been worse. You know, there was there was people getting killed and things, and it was fucking crazy. You know, so. But um, I think probably the worst thing about prison is like, it's just that uh, you, you've got nothing to do. Every day's like Every day feels like a, like three days, you know, because it's that long. You've got nothing to occupy your time with except for maybe sitting, and read books. And it's just shite. Anyone who comes out, I hear it all the time. Ah, prison's a doddle, you know. Or yeah, not yeah, now, yeah. I don't, but, you know, previously. Okay. You, you know,
3: would, you, a... would you say that then... Uh... Did it have a Rehabilitation effect On you Or were you Obviously because You'd built those Friendships and you Didn't feel uh, like You had nothing to lose Was that the, the To use it again The motivating factor For you to be on The straight and narrow Afterwards like I want to retain These friendships I want to grab onto this identity That I've got um, From this perspective Or was it prison That rehabilitated you I
2: think it was a bit of both To be fair because I mean You know You learn as you go along You know That's, that's a fact It doesn't matter What you're doing You still learn From your experiences And Certainly for me, when I was in prison, when I moved out to adult prisons, um, which I was in a couple of times, you would see people who were like 60, maybe sometimes even 70 years old, and they were always in and out. And I was just like, that's not going to be me. I'm not letting that happen to me. Um, But, you know, see, in all honesty, right, that, that book fucking saved me. Because, see, when I came out, if that hadn't been the case, I would have probably went back to it, you know. I would uh, not, maybe not 100% sure that I would have, but I might have done, and it was certainly a high chance. But when I came out and started writing the book and stuff like that, it gave me something to focus on. Um, and obviously, once the book was published, I was like, well, that's it. I can never do it now because everybody knows the story. I that's was,
3: that's how I, uh, obviously, not to the same extent. That's how I feel about gambling. I was a secret gambler, so that's why I identified so uh, much with you. But when people know that you're a gambler, and i the tipping point came a few years ago, and everyone ended up known. I can't go back to that, because people notice the signs, people, um, you kind of stop yourself because you don't feel like you've got the secret identity anymore, you can't be these two different people, right. is, is what I'm saying, so you, you've already put that in, in place not to do it again. You
2: didn't ask me a question, you didn't actually ask me, but it was kind of, I felt as though you were trying to ask me earlier on, like, did I feel that it was an addiction? Yeah. Like. Even I think back to it, it's like certain moments. I mean, there was a time when I went into a bank in Belfast and I handed over a credit card and asked for three and a half grand. Right, uh, so she's away doing all the bits and making the phone call to the, the bank and all the rest of it, and I was literally standing there. My heart was going ten to the dozen, like I mean, literally pounding like mad. And then see when she came back and handed me the cash, I was like, I mean, I literally that's the here's my arms are still standing up now, like maybe because I. Because I, cle- I remember clearly how I felt at that time, you know. And it was just, it was some buzz, you know. Yeah. like Because there was always that little, is, is it going to go through? You know, is it going to work? Am I going to get fucking caught? You know, <laughs> and it was just so, there was, I think that there is definitely an element of that that is addictive.
3: Yeah, yeah, the the money doesn't even matter. It's the the moment. It's the it's the rush of it happening. You know.
2: I I know what you're saying. it is, it is yeah. it is I, I mean, definitely. Like you wouldn't you wouldn't do it for like a fiver. Do you know what I mean?
3: <laughs> I know, but but the, the point where you're like ah, it's the chase kind of thing. Yeah. Um, but that nah, I mean, it's it's honestly um, it's some story and. It's amazing that you've you've came back from it as well, especially you know that that dominating so much of your identity and then coming out the other side and building you know your passion for music and uh, rebuilding those relationships as well. Even picking up the phone to that teacher,
2: that's that's the sort of thing that uh, she was so good to me. I had to I had to you know you remember people who do the the nice things for you in life, you know, and especially like when you've got people like her who were. Who, as I said in the wee note that I wrote to her, she was a light in my life at a very dark time, you know, because she was like it was a hard time for me being at school. Like I didn't, I loved learning, but I hated school. Yeah, if that makes sense, you know, I loved loved the lessons and I loved learning shit, but being at school and having to mix with other pupils was a fucking nightmare for me, you know. Um, so, but yeah, I appreciate you saying that. You know, it's it's, it's been it's been a long journey to, as I say, be at peace with myself over it, and I think I'm almost there, you know. I'm still a chancer. I probably always will be a chancer, but I don't, I don't, I don't do things to, you know, like to steal from people anymore. That's not, you know, that's not, it's not in my, it's not in my psyche anymore to do that sort of thing. You know, Listen,
3: is it, it'd be a chancer, mate, but for your own benefit and moving forward in your career in music and stuff. You know, if you can navigate yourself into a room of these uh, heroes and the people that can benefit you do it all day long you know that, that's what I say but listen uh, unless you guys got anything more that you want to ask or comment or when
0: on or when you're playing Monopoly always the best time to be a, <laughs> a chance.
3: Shane
1: I was just it doesn't feel appropriate because it was a very nice ending but I was just going to say if you were uh if you were going to murder someone and <laughs> get away with it, and like to be fair, you have the mad flag because you've you know bought Rolexes and shit, and how would you do it? Like, if you were to get away with murder, what
3: would you do to get away with it?
2: That's a crazy question, mate.
3: <laughs> I it's, like, a, it's a question that we ask everyone, not just yourself.
2: <laughs> right, okay, so I was uh, basically, uh, I don't know, that's uh, I have to think about that one, but I guess you just have to. You know, it's something I have thought about because I I like watching like Columbo and stuff like that. You know, like all these kind of things. I've got a slight obsession with like programs about serial killers and stuff because I find it fascinating. Like, it's always to me, it's more like, how did that thought come into their head to do that in the first place? You know, yeah some of the crazy shit they've done. It's not the fact they've done it. It's like, where does that come from? Like in your head, I'm gonna fucking chop somebody's head off and stick it in a jar of formaldehyde in the fridge and stuff like that you know it's like bonkers but i think really if you want to, if you if if you want to get away with murder i think you have to be super clever but also very lucky because like see how like i was saying earlier on about there's always something that you don't know about you can't know everything so mm. no matter how well you've planned something there's always a chance that something's happened in that in that um Sphere of influence that you don't know about, you know, so I, hope, I, I don't know if that really answers your question.
3: If, you, if you're I, asking I think that's the, the, probably one of the best answers because it's deterring people from... I feel like we might have influenced a lot of <laughs> Glasgow already to maybe commit some mental murders, but th- that there might bring them back down. Someone might just be on the precipice of committing the murder that they heard Jane McAry, describe. The scribe, then they hear you and they're like, oh, fuck, what about that thing that I didn't think about that might happen <laughs> and they, it brings them back? I'm just writing notes, so just um, <laughs> be really clever and... I'm just going to add, I'm paraphrasing here, but just don't jizz
1: everywhere. Yeah,
3: that's usually your one. Um, But no, Elliot, thank you, mate, um, for taking the time out to talk to us. I really appreciate it. We'll give your book a plug as well because we'll we'll hope that there's still royalties uh, kicking around if people buy it. And uh, genuinely, mate, it was an absolute pleasure talking to you. Where
2: where can we hear your live stuff on a Friday as well? So I, I, I do a, it's a, it's on a, a website called Mixler. Um, so uh, the basically I've got my Instagram which is at Elliot Castro with photos. <laughs> um, so I usually post something on there, but I also got my Facebook group, Elliot Castro Music, and there's a Facebook group as well, Elliot Castro Live Broadcasts, which I usually post on there as well. And it's the same link every week. It's Mixler mix m i x l r dot com forward slash Elliot Castro. Um, and basically from half past eight on a Friday if you click that link it should just start playing the music straight away Um, and if you sign up to the app you can send messages and stuff as well just to get involved with the chat or whatever you know so um, it starts in about 10 minutes actually so um, yeah that's a
1: polite way of telling us to get (laughs) (laughs) fucked it's been lovely but uh, fuck off
3: (laughs)
2: I just want to say thanks for asking. I was quite surprised um, to get asked uh, on your podcast. I think I don't know if it was somebody was one of you guys that started following me from the podcast account, and then I, I looked at it and I followed you back. And then when you got in touch, I was like, oh, that sounds that sounds joking. Yeah,
3: I, I followed you a while back, mate. I read your book twice over the years. So I just went back and as I find, as I said, a fascinating story. It's, it's just it's a gripping read. Um, and then I uh, when we were started the podcast, I went I'd love to get this guy on, you know, and just uh, chat about it a wee bit more. So it's an oh. absolute pleasure having you here. Genuinely to have
2: been asked So thanks very much It was just Especially when I saw The other guests you'd had I was like Fucking
3: hell That's quite cool Getting asked to do that You know So. Uh, and now you've met us mate You realise Oh fuck These cunts are just lucky When they got those guests <laughs> We, we right. put on m- mental accents and that's... <laughs> Bigger blaggers Than yourself buddy um, No but genuinely Thank you mate And I um, have a, a Brilliant time In your DJ set tonight Really Really appreciate you being on It was nice talking
2: to you yeah. Take care my Cheers, man Elliot Thank you right. Thank Woo-hoo. you buddy
1: that was drunk therapy if you enjoyed this podcast go listen to some of the other ones the old you would have if you're on socials like us there as well twitter facebook and instagram at drunk therapy it's something weird on twitter which i can't remember right now